You're listening to Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey, the podcast that shares wisdom and strength. Join your host, Dr. Michelle St. Jane's weekly conversation on how to have a positive impact for people, planet, and the wider world. If you want to live a life of intention, be proactive with your time, and bring your vision for the future to life one today at a time, you are in the right place at the right time. Let's get started. Deb Bolkus, leadership expert, author of a four-book series, entrepreneur whose mission is to help leaders and their organizations to be the best places to work. I think Deb's superpowers are, she's confessed this one, her poker face, but also her deep vein of confidence and willingness to share her wisdom. Good reminder to you, explore your superpowers too. Deb's third book is just for you, Women on Top. She asks, what's keeping you from executive leadership? On this topic, we have a heart-to-heart conversation. Why? Well, Deb shares an interesting statistic. While 38 of the Fortune 500 CEOs are women, a record high, that's only 7.6% of the total. So what's keeping these women from executive leadership? Do you want to know? I want to know. Life and leadership is a conscious journey. Hop on board. Aligned with her vision, creating best places to work for women, progressing their potential, Deb's going to share many valuable leadership lessons with us. Deb, I think you and I have done a lot of what I like to call surfing with the angels. Those long haul flights on business trips, you know more about the hotel than the country. (laughs) And when I was reading a part of your book, what came to my mind was like, thinking about soul print, soul purpose. When I heard your story about your mid-flight awakening in 2003, can you share with the audience, please? Well, thank you for having me, Michelle. I'm delighted to be here today. And as you said, I've spent a lot of my life on airplanes flying across the country. And I've spent almost 30 years in Fortune 100, Fortune 500 leadership. And in the technology industry, which is what I would call a rather male-dominated environment, which I have to say I loved every day of my career. I loved being in that environment. I loved all the people I worked with throughout my career. I spent a lot of time in planes. But towards the end, I was traveling across North America, talking to CEOs and VPs, C-level officers and VPs of major organizations, helping them navigate through regulatory issues that were impacted them. And after this one meeting in particular, I would sat down on the plane. You know how you do, you kind of sit down and go, you decompress and you think back on the events of the day. And I'm usually thinking about what could I have done better? What could I do differently next time? And usually I'm fairly satisfied with the day's events. But the one thing that struck me that day was once again, I'm like the only woman in the room. Why is that? And I just reflected back over the course of my life from the time I went to graduate school, got my MBA in management information systems. So my MBA is, while it's in business, it's uh, technical aspects of that. And I was one of the few women in that particular program. And then as I went through, I was really blessed to not only have some great male mentors all throughout my career, and I'm very grateful for that. I also had some really amazing women who I was so blessed to report to. And honestly, if it hadn't been for the first woman who talked me into changing my career path from the technical area, I was a systems engineer. 
I was in a customer facing role in engineering and helping design technical solutions, technology solutions for our clients. And this woman one day brought me in and said, oh, by the way, your sales rep who you support has quit. But total surprise to me. I had no idea that was going to happen. And she said, so I'd like you to take his job. And I thought, you, you must be kidding. But she said, you don't seem to understand the reason that sales rep is our number one sales rep in the entire area, making more money than anybody else, more successful than anyone else, getting all the awards for the sales team is really because of you. And it's what you do with the customers. And it blew me away because I never saw myself in a sales role. I thought I am the person who's kind of behind the scenes. You know, he knocks on the doors. I could not see myself as a door opener. But fast forward, I decided, oh, well, what the heck? I'll give it a try. You know, worst case, I'll just go back to doing what I'm doing. And the rest was history. As you can imagine, I, I moved into sales. I was highly successful. And then again, on that flight, I started thinking through, how did I get where I was? I never once in my entire career felt that I was ever held back in any way. I felt anything I wanted to do, I was able to make happen. I went up the line through the technology, through sales, moved into professional services, ran organizations nationwide, worldwide. I had global organizations towards the end. Fortunately, I had incredible women who I was lucky enough to report to along the way who became good friends of mine and who were also really great sponsors for me, who pushed me. And in some cases were people, the last one I had in particular was someone, some people said, don't work for her. Oh my gosh, don't work for that person. She's really difficult to work for. And honestly, I found her one of the most amazing women ever. And I was so blessed to have her in my career. So she and I was, were really going up line together. I had a wonderful, wonderful career in the technology industry. But after being in that, once again, a boardroom meeting with the CEO and other C-level executives and being the only woman in the room, aside from the executive assistant who poured the coffee and made sure the light bulb was in the projector and all of those things, I thought something, something is really wrong and I need to do something about it. And that is... Looking back over and thinking of all the amazing women I've worked with throughout my life and how many women I started my career with, even though I didn't go to, a, to school with a lot of them, there were a lot of women who were in the entry level, first line managers in major corporations back in the day. We had lots of great leadership development training, but they somehow disappeared as you started moving up the line. And I knew it wasn't a lot of the men would say, well, women want to have children. They want to stay home and raise their families. And yes, we do. But you know what? <laughs> we have the ability to raise our children and go to work just like guys. You can raise your children and be a great mom or a great dad and still go to work and have a great career. And so something came over me. And I know, Michelle, you and I have kind of talked about it. You read about it in my story in the book. And it, it was almost a uh, God kind of experience that all of a sudden something comes over you and says, this has got to be your mission in life. This is why you were put on this earth for this issue. You are going to address this issue and you are going to help accelerate advancement for women to senior leadership. You are going to help women maximize their potential. And it's not that everybody wants to be the top dog. And I understand that. That's okay. But the thing is, we all need to maximize our potential. And that's what I'm all about. I love that. I love the way you share your sole purpose and also how it was this awakening, this inspiration, this sense of direction, this quiet voice saying, 
Are you noticing the composition of the boardroom? Are you noticing how comfortable you are in this setting? There's more that you could do. And it's interesting because your 2003 awakening was very similar to one I had where I pivoted out of being in the C-suite to starting a social enterprise law firm because I wanted there to be more women lawyers, more successful women in the C-suite. And I realized that I could contribute to education. So I taught law and I could teach business and risk management type papers and things like that. But I also wanted to be providing accessibility to education, to a corporate world and that type of thing. I really resonate with your story. And the same thing happened to me. I was like, I am really good at my job. I love what I'm doing, but I'm actually not quite satisfied. There's more I could be doing that would have a wider impact, a ripple out impact. And I don't know who I thought I was, but I started the social enterprise law firm before it even had a name. That came three years later when I attended a symposium at Oxford in England. But I just knew I had to do it. And I went off and I started doing this. People thought I was crazy. I quite understand sometimes the call has got such a push behind it, it needs to be done. So by 2006, you're now leaping into entrepreneurship and advocacy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How did you make the transition? What was your why? Oh, my why. Well, it was interesting. After that plane ride, (laughs) I was thinking through these things. I continued working in the corporate world for a while. And finally, and you'll have to read the book to see what that one thing was that actually got me to finally decide, okay, I'm departing the corporate world now and I'm going to focus on this. And honestly, when I left the corporate world, I did not know. I knew the objective. I knew the why, which was do something to help accelerate advancement for women. But I didn't know how. And I didn't know what that thing would look like. What would I do? But I certainly didn't have any misgivings about jumping in with both feet. And in fact, I had a male mentor at the time who was the CEO of a large cosmetics company that everybody knows. I was having this conversation with him saying, John, I know this sounds really strange, but it's like, I have to do this. And he said, when you feel like that, you do have to do that. You will never be satisfied if you don't do that. So I went out and fortunately, it was at a time, it was shortly after the big 2008 financial crisis. And so there were a lot of really amazing people who were out of work, both men and women who at the senior levels were suddenly not working anymore because of that financial crisis. And a lot of well-known companies went out of business during that period. So I was able to sync up and meet actually some women I didn't know before. Women who were incredible vice presidents of information technology, chief financial officers, women who were in the uh, big four accounting firms, leading professional services organizations and so on. And so I went to them and told them, here's what I want to do. First of all, I want to figure out what is holding women back. What is keeping women from moving into the senior leadership roles, which is kind of the title of my book now. So this book has been kind of going on in my mind for a long time, for over 10 years now. And I said, help me understand if we could reel it back and go back to earlier in our lives. What is something that we wished we had had before we started this climb? What could we have had given to us that would have made that journey faster, easier, allowed us to have more confidence to move forward? And so together with them, we came up with this idea to have an organization, which would be a peer mentoring program. And at the time, I had spent my whole life in Fortune 100, Fortune 500, the world of the big companies. And I wasn't really familiar with 
infrastructure and support systems that were available for smaller companies. So there's organizations like Vestige, other organizations where CEOs of small to mid-sized companies get together and they become their own support infrastructure. They become kind of board members for each other. And so they can talk about the challenges that they're having and what the other ones would advise doing or, hey, don't try that because I did that and here's the downfall of it. And so we kind of came up with a concept like that, but we decided that what was really needed was an organization like that, where we had different programs for women at different steps on the career ladder, because we realized you have different needs and different questions when you're just being looked at early in your career as a potential manager, a manager candidate, if you will. So you're in one place then. And then once you get into management, you find out, whoa, this is not what I thought it was. <laughs> a lot of people find out they're really not cut out to be managers. Other people just really gravitate to it. But it's a whole different animal moving from being an individual contributor to a first-line manager. And then moving into mid-level management, that's a totally different animal too, because now you're not the direct manager saying, okay, go do this. Here's what you should do. Consider doing that. Now your job is really interrelating with other organizations and figuring out how to best work together with other organizations so you don't have these silos going on. So that's a different set of challenges. When you move up to the more senior ranks and you're reporting directly to the CEO and there are issues dealing with that and a lot of women have a real hard time when it comes to walking into that boardroom and you are now expected, you think, I have to know everything now. <laughs> you don't, but that's what we think. We hold ourselves back from that in particular. And then there's when you are a CEO and now you're alone. And now who do you go to? How do you mentor yourself or who do you get to mentor you? And so we realized that there are all these different things that needed to be done for women at different steps on the ladder. And so we created an organization called Business Women Rising. And we had peer mentoring programs for women at different steps on the career ladder. Best thing I ever did in my life. It was the most fulfilling thing I have ever done. And I would still be doing it today if it weren't for the fact that my husband, after a few years of doing that and having incredible success, my husband was diagnosed with late stage three cancer. And so that was an inflection point in our lives. And I took a different direction, but my purpose in life didn't die. My purpose in life never changed. I just had to find a different way to go about it. And through it all, as I said, the, the company that I founded was originally Business Women Rising, but we quickly found out after a year or two that companies were very concerned about putting just their women in a program. We've got to have equality. We need to have the same things for men and women. And so we changed the name of the company to Business World Rising. It was still the same acronym, same website, but Business World Rising. And really, when you think about it, if we kept our original mission, which is accelerating advancement for women, at the end of the day, by helping women become their biggest version of their best selves and to maximize their potential, isn't that also maximizing the potential of business and organizations, even if it's the military or wherever it happens to be? That is the world rising, hence the name Business World Rising, which has had a much longer life and continues on. <laughs> so much wisdom there, Debs. Thank you. And I really appreciate, you can kind of see that your career went, because I know you also did fashion design. There's this beautiful creativity into business, into serving, 
into contributing. And I love the fact that you were willing to allow the business women rising to become a more diverse group that included gender because we still need to know how to get along with the blokes and the blokes really need to get along with us because over the centuries men have learned at the men's at other men's knees basically by being in the office running the errands carrying the golf bag so that's how men tend to mentor men it's through the sort of buddy system and they're not that comfortable with doing that with women not all men are anyway so it's really wonderful that business world rising now gives men the opportunity opportunity to learn how to be in relational leadership with women as opposed to competitive leadership. So I'm really delighted that you're writing the books because that's another whole new skill set, translating all your wisdom into the words. Did this come about by chance or by choice? Well, actually, it started by choice. Because as we developed Business Women Rising initially, one of the things that we did, we didn't just have peer mentoring programs for women at each step of the ladder. We knew that we needed to help women mentor each other. And so we deliberately brought together all of our members from all the different groups twice a year into what we called an exchange event. That would be an all-day event where we had amazing speakers who would talk about leadership issues that women, no matter what level you're at, these are issues we all struggle with. And so twice a year, we would bring everyone together and we would deliberately mix CEOs with the first line managers and the mid-level, everybody would sit together at their tables and we would have 150 people at these events. And it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. I learned quickly, both from doing the individual sections, as well as these exchange events was that I needed a way to impart my leadership philosophy on the women who were coming into our program and eventually guys that would come into the program. Because my leadership philosophy was a little bit different than some companies evolved into over time. I really believe that everybody needs to be doing what they love to do and love what you do and do what you love kind of thing. Because of what I always found throughout my entire career, at least, was anytime we were having a challenge with an individual or between departments or whatever it was, it was because somebody wasn't happy with what was going on. They weren't happy doing what they were doing and they were doing the best they could. But when you're not doing what you really love and you're struggling to get it done, you have this internal battle going on and that comes out and you start battling with other people as well. And so I wanted to write the book, which was How to Accelerate Advancement for Women, but I realized I needed to back up and impart my philosophy on how to lead a great organization, no matter who you are. How do you create a workplace where people love to be there? They line up to get in and they would never want to work anyplace else and where people thrive because they always are focusing on what more can I do? What can I do next that I would really love to do? And how can we help that individual move forward? And so that whole concept kind of killed two birds with one stone, which was, I think I need to write a book on because I would ask people, do you love where you work? And that was always one of the first things we would ask women who came into our program without really asking the question, are you happy where you are? Do you love what you do? We would have dialogue that eventually all of this would come out and we'd have to say, well, you know, if you're not loving what you're doing, what would you rather be doing? If you could do anything in the universe, what would that look like? I spent a career helping people think through those issues and then moving them along to, to wherever they could do that if it wasn't in my own organization. Often it was, but sometimes it wasn't. 
we ended up writing not just one book, but two on how to have a best place to work culture. How can you change the culture of a company if it's not something that's really the best that it could be right now? And how can you do that where you are right now? You don't have to be the CEO. You can just change your little world. And how do you do that? And so that became my first book, which I have right here called The Wow Factor Workplace, How to Create a Best Place to Work Culture. And if surprisingly, a lot of people had no idea what a best place to work even looked like because so many people said, I nearly never loved where I worked. I just had to have a job. And so you mean there really are great places to work? And when you find out, yes, there really are great places to work out there, but they are few and far between. And you have to know where to look and you have to know the questions to ask to make sure that that's what you get into when you move into one. But if yours isn't one, how do you make it one? So that first book helped people understand what a great place to work can and does look like. And there's all different kinds. It's not just in one industry. And then the second book, we dug a little deeper into the real challenges that leaders have to transform a company into a great place to work. And that's where my second book came in, which is called Heartfelt Leadership, How to Capture the Top Spot and Keep on Soaring. And so this helps you wherever you're at the beginning of the ladder or moving up the ladder. And then even when you're at the top, how do you keep going and making it better and better and better? So there's where the concept came from. There's where I've gone. And, and now I'm stepping back and, and writing those books just for women to help them literally get out of their own way so they can maximize their potential and use their superpowers, as you said, and create that wealth factor workplace. And I also think it's a good read for men. I plan on recommending your book to some of the CEOs that I know who are very inspired by diversity and inclusion and equality and their leadership is something that they also put behind those values of encouraging that. So I want to move on to education because I really loved your books have this amazing group of incredibly rich personal real life stories by down to earth yet highly successful C-suite women. And I love the diversity of of education in there as well, because lots of people think if I haven't got an education, I can't do these things. Your journey started as a fashion designer (laughs) and then to your MBA. How did you make these choices? What drove you to do that? Well, it's interesting. I've probably had no more thought than the least person among us about what will I do when I go to college. I just knew, you know, my parents told me, you will go to college. And my mother and father both went to college and they were first generations in their family to go to college. In fact, their parents was sixth grade education. That was it. They became very successful business people, but I didn't really know what I was going to do when I went to college. I was really good at math. And my father helped me as a young girl, actually taught me trigonometry, calculus, all these things I was doing at a very young age. And so when it came time to go to college, I thought, well, I'll I'll be a math major. You know, I know there's not very many people that do that and I can be different. But my father also said, but you need to get into computers because this was back in the early 1970s. And he said, that's kind of the way of the future. He didn't have a a computer that ran his company. In fact, when summers, I would work for him as a bookkeeper, (laughs) helping doing it. My dad was an accountant by trade. And so he taught me to do that. And I thought, okay, well, I'll be a math major and I'll study computers. And so I went to UCLA. I was accepted to University of California at Los Angeles. And I became a double major math computer science major. And I was like the only woman in that program, which, you know, from some perspectives, you could think, wow, what a great opportunity. And it was fine. It was interesting. But after a year, I realized I don't love this. 
And by then my mother had passed away. My father had kind of left the coop, was kind of left on my own. And I just knew I don't love this. And I don't, I could not see, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have anyone to talk to at the time to help me see what could I do with this. I mean, if somebody had said, hey, you can work for Caltech, you can be a rocket scientist. You can, I, I couldn't see it. So I didn't know what I was going to do. So I, I was in a sorority house and I talked to some of the girls in my sorority. Of course, none of them were math majors, but one of them was a design major. And she said, do you like design? And I'm like, everybody that sorority house knew I made my own clothes and I love doing that. I would make party clothes. I would do custom things for them for events. The idea came to me, well, I could be a fashion designer because I would do custom things anyway. I would buy these patterns. I would make clothes and then I'd interchange the collars and make them my own. So what really drove me to make this change was my father had told me he would pay for two years of college. That was it. And after two years, I was on my own and I had already wasted a whole year <laughs> at UCLA. And I only had one more year's worth of money and I uh, to pay for my room and board and tuition and all of that. I had to do something. And I found out that I could get an AA in fashion design. And at the end of two years, and oh, by the way, they would give me credit for that year at UCLA, even though it wasn't in fashion design, it was in math, but you've always got you know extra things you've got to take. And so I could get a two-year AA and then get out and get a job. The good news was I lived in Los Angeles. And so at the time, there were a lot of clothing manufacturers, design houses in downtown Los Angeles. And so it was kind of survival. I only had two years that I could go to college and have it paid for. And I needed to get out and get to work because I had no money. I can see so, that. I can see that. And you're very strategic. And I can relate to this because my first degree was law. So linear, so lacking creativity drove me crazy. And I was quite the rule breaker because my creative thinking was like, you could have challenged the decision this way or that way. But I love the fact that you went on and did your MBA and kind of went back into the management information systems. I also appreciate the fact, you know, a bachelor's tells the world that you know how to think. A master's says you're an expert in a certain area and a doctorate says you contribute knowledge. And you make a really great position in your book. A PhD is really required in the C-suite. And in fact, it can be a detriment. And I totally agree with you on that because I decided to do my PhD at 50. But I chose to do that because at 50, I thought, what if I've got another 80 years ahead of me and I'm not looking to retire anytime soon? So I'm not going to fit anywhere. I need to create my own niche and develop my thought leadership, but I also wanted to contribute to the world's knowledge base because I didn't see the research there and the areas that I felt needed some attention. Very similar to your 2003 aha moment. That was my next aha moment when I decided to do my doctorate in 2012. And I'm really glad I did. But uh, one of the things I had to wrestle with was if I wanted to go back into the corporate world, it was going to be a detriment more than a bonus because I wasn't in sciences. I wasn't in the areas where research is monetized because it was all my thinking and positioning. So I just made the commitment to do it because I wanted to contribute to the knowledge base. But it's a good point that you make because a lot of people are racing around adding degrees, but they may not be contributing to what you really need. I want to come back to the personal side of things because you mentioned this life event that happened that, again, pivoted you out of the work world. And I think it's really important for listeners to hear that people matter. And if you choose to pivot out to care for family or for things that need to be caring for, rather than counting them as a detriment, perhaps we can see that there was a lot of value in taking these steps, a lot of integrity, a lot of things that really 
big and are just as much as important to serving the world as the bottom line. Would you like to speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I have told people who've reported to me over the years, as well as the people who are in our program in Business Women and Business World Rising, is that every moment of your life, you are a role model. Whether you think about it or not, whether you notice it or not, other people are watching you all the time. And think about the people who are younger than you, who look to you. And if they respect you, they see every action as that's what a role model would do. Now, sometimes a role model is not a good role model. And I had plenty of them that taught me, I don't want to be that way, but they were still a role model in something. So that's how we all learn to navigate, to do what we think is right. But I think you're referring to, as I mentioned earlier, after I had established this company and things were going really well with accelerating advancement for women into leadership. And then one day my husband came home and he said, I have some not such good news. And I said, oh, what's that? What happened? And I thought maybe got fired or something, which would have been a shock, but uh, I was ready for that. And then he said, I just heard from the doctor, I have late stage three breast cancer. Uh, What? You're a man. How could you have breast cancer? It's like one in a thousand breast cancer cases are men, but he did. And he had had a cyst that he had found four years earlier that they said, don't worry about it. It's a cyst. It'll go away. But it just kept getting bigger. And I said, well, okay, so what does that mean? Stage three, late stage three. I I didn't even know anything about stages or anything. And the last stage is four. (laughs) Four is like, okay, this is not good. And it is really difficult to come back from stage four, at least then. Certainly with breast cancer, that was the situation. And as soon as he said that to me, and I thought of all the people that I've known in my life and who's gone through cancer, who survived and who didn't, how it was, and you know, different cancers have different outcomes and everybody has their own journey and story. But I said, okay, you're the most important thing in my life. And I mean, I wasn't thinking about anybody else at the time and being a role model to anyone. It was just, you are the most important thing in my life. And even though I've started this company and I'm passionate about it, I will not allow you to spend one day of this alone. I will be with you by your side every moment. And the next day, literally, I contacted my team and I said, I'm going to have to step out. And I don't know if and when I'll come back. But you guys know what you're doing. You guys are awesome. That's why you're here. And I know you can do this. And I'm depending on you and I'll be available by phone from time to time that I've got to be with my husband. And I did. I mean, literally I walked away and, and I spent virtually every day for a year with him as he went through surgery. He, he had a double mastectomy. He had radiation. He had chemotherapy. He went through all of the things that women would do. And we really didn't know going in. I thought, well, I'll be really grateful if we get a year together. You thank your lucky stars. You thank God for every day that you do have. And it brought us, I mean, we were really close anyway. We've always had a wonderful marriage and he's my soulmate, my partner, and we are going to enjoy every day to the fullest. That just becomes 100% your focus. And so that was an interesting experience. I learned a tremendous amount from it. And I hope as a result that I've served as a great role model to others to see that something that I learned, I'd never thought about it quite like it then, but I talk about it a lot now. And that is learn every day to think what is most important for me to do today, because do not live with regrets. Do not live a life that at the end of the day, you're going to regret that you did or didn't do something that was really important. It would have made a difference 
in your life and in somebody else's life. And that whole experience just taught me, just do the right thing. Do what will allow you to feel good about what you're doing and not live with regrets. I could live if I never saw that company again. You know what? The world wouldn't go away. Women would still get to work and my team was doing great. But I learned a lot about that. And I am so happy to be able to say that, you know, my husband two years ago bypassed the five-year mark, which is kind of the big thing. You want to get past five years, although you kind of know you're never really past it. You're always looking around the corner for that next experience. That's what I learned out of that. And I don't regret a day of it. And he's still the most important thing in my life and always will be. So much wisdom in your statements is such an important area to share because often as women, we're caught between the people we've got to care for and who's caring for us. And our inability to care has a huge impact on us. I resonate with your story because I was widowed when I was 27 and my husband of 10 years died suddenly. And I walked the last mile with him. And that was a saving grace for me because he left me with the gift of knowing therein lies the gift. It's called the present. So living every day like that. And you're a shining example of you get through these crises and you had a very beneficial outcome and, you know, able to enjoy the blessings of continuing such a beautiful relationship. But you also get to share the story that, you know, you can come back and be just as successful in all the things that you need to be doing after these events and taking care of yourself is of critical importance. Yeah, sometimes you just find how you're going to achieve what you believe is your purpose in life. You may change how you do that. There's always different ways to go about things. And so now I'm writing these books and speaking and, you know, doing all of those things. But I'm very strategic about what kind of engagements I accept beyond just writing and being at home. You know, when am I going to go? Where is it going to be? Can I take my husband? Will he enjoy this? I want him to be there with me if we're going to do it. And if it's not something he wants to do, then, you know, what? we'll find another way to help that company out, get another speaker or I'll do it in a different way. But it's helped me to be much more strategic about what I do. I've always been pretty strategic anyway, but this has really helped me up my game and being strategic about how I live my life. And I hope other people can learn from that. Absolutely. These events can happen at any stage of life. Mine happened in my 20s. And then I had another similar event in my 30s and another huge crisis that happened in my uh, late 40s. So we can keep, it's life is spiraling up and down. We can still keep heading towards what our soul's purpose is in the ways that we need to. Well, Deb, I'm really excited to be sharing your book and I'm just so grateful for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blessing to be here. Dr. Michelle St. Jane is a conscious steward of meaningful leadership in the world and the wider cosmos. Tune in every Thursday for real talk around life, leadership, and your conscious journey. Be ready to create and cultivate your dreams and soul-hearted desires. Your support is valued. Please subscribe. Leave a review and a rating. But more importantly, share with your connections.